Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome into the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. It's the final episode of the season and the finale of our journey for season three of the podcast. On today's episode, the Jedi and Zanama Seacott confront the Yuzhan Vong. And for our heroes, nothing will be the same. It's the unifying force by James Lucino, the 19th and final book in the New Jedi Order series. And joining me to talk about the book today is K2. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I can't believe it's over. I know. it's It's been quite a ride, hasn't it? Yes. I mean, where were we when you asked us to do this? Was... Uh, you guys are the ones that kind of came up with the idea. I just said, hey, if you're going to read these books, come on the podcast with me. I don't have any memory of that, but I do appreciate that I was pulled into it <laughs> like a Dovin basil. I was sucked in, so I'm happy to. I'm happy we decided it, whenever that was. <laughs> well, I can't wait to talk about the book with you today, K2. But before we get to that, listener, since it's the holiday season, I decided to give you all a gift and invite another voice on the show today. It's our buddy Scott. How you doing today, Scott? No, I'm okay, but I think I walked into the wrong room. I've got a pig in the competition over the livestock pavilion. I'm going to win the blue ribbon over there. It's a little late in the year for uh, the county fair, isn't it? We do things differently in Utah. Clearly. Oh, we know that. A lot of snow out there in the horse ring. We judge our pigs by hardiness. Well, thank you for coming on today, Scott. Same thing. It's been quite a ride, hasn't it? It really has. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I don't remember whose idea it was. Uh, I think I was in full force support of the idea of joining without knowing it was 19 books. Uh, (laughs) But it's been so fun. It's been so fun, you know, talking with friends about these books and and with you, of course, Aaron. Uh, It's been great. Well, I can't thank you two enough for helping me with the podcast this season and the other three co-hosts as well. Now, before we wrap up everything and talk about today's book, we have two listener questions today. The first comes from Singapore. K2, it's your favorite emailer, Jew. This is three for three. Three for three. Three straight. He knows when it's my turn. Jew says, thank you for answering my questions on the podcast. I've got two more for you. First, what is the name of the Star Wars galaxy? The second question is another food question. Where is the food produced in the Star Wars galaxy? Thank you so much, and may the Force be with you. Okay, too, since you and you are forming a bit of a rapport, 
Would you like to answer these questions? I'm going to say this, Jude. Next time I'm in Singapore, which will happen. I was in Singapore a few years ago. It will happen. We'll have dinner. We'll go eat some Star Wars food. Um, because you and I definitely apparently like, like food quite a bit. Um, I'm going to start with the food question and that's kind of an easy one I'm going to go with because a lot of it's like based on the natural resources of whatever system they're in. And I mean, I've never seen a large commissary or uh, so I don't know as far as, I mean, the empire, that would be the big question, right? Where do they have their... Their massive kitchen, I can't even imagine. Um, but I would think that food is just where the natural resources lend it. As far as the name of the Star Wars galaxy, uh, I always thought it was a galaxy far, far away. So I'm going to ding, ding, ding. defer to Aaron. Ding, ding, ding. That, that is the name that is the, the name of the galaxy. Really? As far as we know, there is, there's no really official name, but as far as we know in the vernacular, it is the galaxy far, far away. I did do right. a little research on Jew's food question. Very yeah. rudimentary for research because the real answer is each planet, for the most part, is responsible for its own food production. You know, there's not a whole lot of importing, exporting of foodstuffs other than specialty foods. And then, of course, Coruscant. Coruscant being the entire city world planet, they have to import food from everywhere around the galaxy. So just a few, because, again, it's mostly just each planet is responsible for its own food production. A lot of seafood is produced on Mon Calamari. Makes sense. It's a, an ocean world. Uh, Tatooine, you get bantha meat. That's one of the things that they export to the galaxy. Corellia, nerf meat. And then the Hetzal system, for those who are fans of the High Republic books, the Hetzal system is one of the major systems in the galaxy far, far away that produces grains. They do grains on the main planet. The fruited moon grows fruit, and the rooted moon grows vegetables. Those are just uh, some of the rudimentary areas around the galaxy where food is produced. Some of those authors thought they were being entirely too clever with rooted moon and fruited moon. I'll just say that. Uh, <clears throat> I Three for three, I always also just literally, I, I think I thought I was being clever, but I also literally just call it the galaxy far, 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 far away. That's its name. I kind of always assumed the opposite about the food. That given that there were a billion planets with a million cultures or more and seemingly unlimited fuel, which is my real question, I don't really understand how there's never fuel shortages given all this space travel. But uh, I figured there are just planets that do almost nothing but make food. I think we've seen some of that, right? We've even seen it in this series uh, that there was that agricultural planet, right? With the, the big company that's just mass producing food. Uh, and that, that several planets or really thousands of planets made food for, you know, the million other planets. Um, but also the food sucks in Star Wars. We come, you know, the three of us also come from, you know, following the Son of Ice and Fire and hearing about the delectable meals that they prepare. And the food you hear about, it's like sludge and paste and it's not appetizing, fully prepared fare. So it feels like the kind of stuff that you can make in bulk. I don't know. Nerf, it, nerf steak sounds, sounds good to me. I mean, that's basically it, steak. That's fair. Any steak sounds great. 
I think it's perfect that Scott disagreed with me because I think that we will agree on absolutely nothing. This is usually the case. Because you picked the one person (laughs) or the two of us who probably come at this from completely different perspectives. (laughs) So even starting at the question, we don't agree. Well, the name of the galaxy fair, but this will be interesting. We'll have to keep score on the number of things we agree on and disagree on. Well, thank you very much for the emails, you. Scott, would you like to take the second email today? Absolutely. It comes from Robin in Germany. Robin says, one aspect with which I repeatedly tangle in Star Wars society with almost everybody around me is my conviction that Palpatine was not evil from birth, but was shaped by Darth Plagueis and his father in the wrong direction. It makes little sense if he had only one option in his life. Yoda himself makes it clear that the actual enemy of a Jedi learner is always the dark side in a person itself. The Emperor died as a monster, but I refuse to believe that he was already one as a child. What do you think? Thank you for the question, Robin. I agree with part of your sentiment. I don't think anyone is born evil. I don't think George Lucas thinks anyone is born evil. However, I don't think that Palpatine became evil just because of the influences of his father and Darth Plagueis. I always go back to the video of George Lucas explaining his feelings on the Force. And since he's the one who came up with this galaxy, in my mind, he gets to make the rules. The light side is inherently selfless. The dark side is inherently selfish. You get to make your own decisions. You get to make your own choices. You could say that maybe Darth Plagueis and Palpatine's father influenced him in certain ways. But it's still Palpatine who had to make those choices. And Palpatine always makes the selfish choice to benefit Palpatine. So, yes, you are correct. He was not evil from birth. But I think he has to bear the responsibility of turning to the dark side. What do you two think? That's interesting. I kind of agree with both sentiments i think that you're born innocent quote unquote that's i did some air quotes listener um you know you are influenced throughout your life and and people can definitely take you down a path and you don't know you're even you don't even know you're being taken down a path right as you're being raised by society parents etc however to aaron's point you still make decisions but you are making decisions influenced. And I feel like in this world and with the force and the light and the dark side, I feel like there's some sort of gravitational pull that once you lean dark, it starts to really suck you in like a Dovin basil. And maybe it's a stronger pull than say a person like me who could be getting really like road rage yelling at somebody who ran a stop sign and then I can reel myself in. I don't necessarily think it's the same as people who aren't force users, if you will. So I think it is a combination. So I kind of agree with you, Aaron, with some extrapolation there. Scott? Yeah, I mean, kind of uh, variations on the same concept, I suppose. I'm, I'm big on a nature-nurture combo. People are certainly born with things built in. We We pretty much know that genetically, that people are predisposed to certain behaviors or um, leanings 
We know that. But behaviors and beliefs and attitudes can be grown or snuffed out through experience and through the people that they you know, are raised by and influenced by. I believe Palpatine and most people that do true evil have that capacity almost kind of built in. Uh, and it gets encouraged somehow to grow rather than being snuffed out by good influences. And that's, that's where I land on this kind of thing. And absolutely, I agree. In the end, you have to take responsibility for your own actions. It doesn't really matter what your influences are. You, at your core, are making choices to do things. And it doesn't matter how many people influenced you. It's still your choice. So uh, Palpatine's to blame. He had bad influences. He also may have been set up with some predispositions. It's a nasty combo. Thank you very much for the email, Robin. Now, listener, if you have a question like Robin and you, you can send them to me. Email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send me a tweet at legendslounge1. I'm starting to get backed up with listener questions, actually. Uh, I might have to do another mailbag episode sometime after the new year. And stay tuned to the end of the day's show when we have some new Star Wars character groupings to share. But now, it's time for today's book, The Unifying Force by James Lucino. Listener, grab yourself a drink. Let's head in to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. The story begins on Silveris, a planet turned into a prison colony by the Yuzhan Vong, and it holds many high-profile prisoners of war. But through the Rin network, the prisoners of the colony have come into possession of a piece of encoded intelligence that they must get to the Alliance, despite not really knowing what it says. Through a daring escape of tunneling and high-speed swoop piloting, one person escapes, a genet named Thorsh, who is rescued by Han and Leia aboard the Millennium Falcon. They rendezvous at Contrum with Wedge, Kent Hamner, and other military leaders, and decode the message. It says the prisoners on Silveris will soon be moved to Coruscant for their execution in a grand Yuzhan Vong ceremony, and the data indicates exactly what route will be taken. On Yuzhan Tar, Shimra castigates his followers for their lack of faith in the gods and in himself. The Supreme Overlord reassures his people that the struggles and plagues of the planet are a direct result of their lack of faith, blaming them for turning on each other during the long migration to this galaxy. But Shimra has a solution. First, a mass sacrifice, a show of faith to the gods. Second, a new breed of warriors to combat the Jedi, known as Slayers, shaped to defeat the Jedi in battle. On Zanama Seacott, Luke and the Jedi huddle in caves while the planet continues jumping through hyperspace. The jumps appear to be a defense mechanism against Naminor's poisoning attempt, but the jumps disrupt the planet's ecology and weather patterns. In the caves, Seacott appears to the Jedi, ensuring them that Zanama will persevere. But Seacott says it's reconsidering getting involved in the war against the Yuzhan Vong. It must first be what it was meant to be, a caretaker of the living force. As Seacott departs, Danny arrives with news. High Priest Harar is alive and in the care of Tahiri and Tekli. And he just woke up. Meanwhile, Jana Solo leads the attack on the prisoner convoy. Alliance forces overpower the Peace Brigade ships. 
They inject them with a knockout gas, allowing the Alliance to easily extract the prisoners. The Falcon shows up to help with the rescue, but before they can escape, Yuzhan Vong reinforcements arrive, and Jaina realizes these coral skippers are not normal. These skips can travel through hyperspace on their own, they're faster, and the pilots are better. The Alliance forces are quickly overwhelmed and choose to flee. The Falcon, heavily damaged and carrying nearly 80 freed prisoners, is followed through hyperspace by four of the advanced skips. It arrives at Kalula under heavy fire from the four skips, but the Falcon is saved and the Vong are turned away by an orbiting Kalulan station. When the Falcon lands, Han and Leia find a beat-up group of defenders that have been largely ignored by the Galactic Alliance despite requests for assistance. Still, they commit to fixing the Falcon up with what they can scrounge. Suddenly, alarm klaxons blare. The station is under attack and the exhausted defenders won't be able to hold out for long. Luke and the Jedi meet with Harar, who says that the prophet leading the shamed ones was Naminor and that the former executor was the one that poisoned Zunama Seacott. Harar says his mind is changing about the planet and reveals that there was rumor of its existence in Vong circles before the invasion. Luke and Harar exchange ideas about the Force and about Vong philosophy and religions. They are far apart, but if spared, Harar says he hopes to bridge the gap between them, insisting that they are not that dissimilar. Luke agrees, saying that he believes the Yuzhan Vong are part of the Force somehow. He says they have much to learn from each other and from Zonama Zikat. On Yuzhan Tar, High Prefect Drathul warns Naminor about a rumor that the Shamed Ones plan to disrupt Shimra's ceremony. Drathul says that if the heretics are successful, he will hold Naminor personally responsible. Quietly, Naminor dons his disguise as Yu Shah and convenes a meeting. He tries to tamper the enthusiasm of the heretics, but to no avail. His reappearance fills the shamed ones with hope. They cry out that their prophet has returned to overcome Shimra and that the living planet of prophecy will be their salvation. While Luke, Jason, Jabatha, and the others look for Sakat, Luke tries to see Harar through the force. He reflects on Verger's thoughts about the Yuzhan Vong, that the aliens are indeed part of the force. It's just the Jedi's perception of the force that is wrong. Meanwhile, Harar fears for his people on their current path. The Yuzhan Vong have despoiled a living planet here, the very type of planet they wish to recreate. Harar says the ancient Vong were attacked by a culture driven by technology but that the gods gifted the Vong with knowledge to fight back with biological weapons. Harar says that after successfully defending themselves, the Vong continued conquering other cultures. Just then, Sakat speaks through Jabatha to ask about Harar, indicating that Sakat recognizes the Vong, but doesn't know why. Nor can Sakat perceive Harar in the Force. When Jason asks why the Vong left their homeworld, Harar says that their history indicates they may have been banished because they turned to war and conquest. Sakat now understands. The Yuzhan Vong have been stripped of the Force. The Falcon finally arrives at Mon Calamari, and Han and Leia find the biggest fleet they've ever seen. Jaina immediately takes her parents to a war council. The news, the council believes the Vong attack on Mon Calamari is imminent but they have a plan. They'll split the fleet, 
Half will remain to defend Mon, Mon Calamari, while the other half move to retake Coruscant. Not everyone agrees with this strategy, arguing that Coruscant may not be salvageable. But Admiral Crefe and Admiral Sav are adamant, saying that this war will not end until Coruscant is retaken. They believe that the freed slaves and the heretical shamed ones will help in the fight, weakening Yuzhan Tar from the inside. By the time the Vong battle group at Mon Calamari realizes that Coruscant is in danger, it will be too late to return to the former galactic capital. Han and Leia return to Kalula with Kipteron and an undercover alliance intelligence team to disable the Yamask on the planet. The team begins to make its way through the jungle to a site near the Yamask when they realize they're being followed. They ambush a squad of Vong warriors, but find the victory too easy, as if the troops were poorly trained. Later, they find a crashed coral skipper and its pilot dead, with seemingly no damage. As they close in on the Yamask base, the team is ambushed by a group of slayers. During the fight, Han receives what appears to be a fatal fanged bite to his neck by an amphistaff, but he doesn't die. Moreover, all the Vong in the base appear sick, almost falling over. In fact, all the Vong biotechnology appears to be dying. Oh no, Kipteron says. It's Alpha Red. The Alliance has released it here on Kalula. And with the Slayers having departed the planet, the team fears that the plague will now spread throughout the galaxy. In a grand display of power and firepower, Shimra orders 5,000 ships to launch toward Mon Calamari. But Naminor has heard rumblings of doubt in the higher castes of the, of the Supreme Overlord's plan, and the roiling hatred from the dispossessed Shame Ones in the lower caste. While Shimra's war was with the gods and the Alliance, he was not paying attention to his biggest threat, his own people. Just then, Shimra's jester Onimi approaches Naminor and tells him to keep the faith, because disbelief is what can cause the mission to falter. At Mon Calamari, the Yuzhan Vong fleet emerges from hyperspace. Nas Choka surveys the field and is confident with what he sees, but the War Master knows that the Alliance is holding parts of its fleet back. The War Master excuses nearly half of his forces to depart, not to Kalula and Tung La, as the Alliance suspects, but to Kantruum, where he knows enemy forces are waiting to attack Yuzhan Tar. Finally, Sonama Seacott emerges from hyperspace. It takes up orbit near Coruscant. The sight of the living planet causes the heretics to flood out into the streets. Shimra orders his warriors to slaughter them all, much to the horror of Naminor. Just then, Alliance forces arrive, causing Shimra to telepathically order the world brain to destroy Yuzhan Tar. He's insane, Naminor realizes. He grabs his Uglith masker and flees the palace. He dons the Yusha disguise and shouts to the heretics. He is the prophet, returning to lead the shamed ones to their redemption. A great roar erupts from the heretics, and they strike out at the warriors. Meanwhile, Han, Leia, Jaina, and Kip arrive at Sonamasi Kot and meet with Luke, where the Jedi Master divides the group up and lays out four missions. Kip, Corin, Saba, and Tekli will stay to defend Zanama Sakat. Mara and Tahiri will join the heretic uprising against Vong army. 
Han, Leia, and Harar will try to stop the world brain from destroying the planet. And Luke, Jason, and Jaina try to stop Shimra. Zonama Scott grows new biological starfighters for the Jedi staying with the planet. The new ships are like nothing Kip and Corrin have ever flown. They're quicker, more maneuverable. But Sakat is adamant that the fighters will only be used in defense. In fact, they won't even fire, unless the Vong fire on them first. The recapture of Coruscant begins. Mara and Tahiri join the heretics in the streets, leading them towards Shimra's palace. Amid the fighting, Tahiri spots Yusha and immediately recognizes the fake prophet as Naminor. Mara pursues the former executor into the Undercity and captures him. He tells Mara that Shimra ordered the Alpha Red infected ship that returned from Kalula to fly to Zonoma Seacott to kill the living planet. Han, Leia, Harar, and their strike team land outside the Well of the World Brain. At first, they're pushed back by a group of warriors led by High Prefect Drothul and Master Shaper Kayla Quad. But soon, Mara, Tahiri, and Naminor arrive leading the Shame Ones, and the group fights their way into the well. But the well is better defended than Harar believed, and our heroes are surrounded by a larger group of Vong warriors. Slowly, the warriors close the circle. Resigned that this may be the end, Leia reaches out to her children and to her brother with the Force. But suddenly, a cry rises from the entryway to the well. It's another group of Vong warriors joining the heretics. Luke and the Solo Twins lead a squad of Alliance commandos towards Shimra's palace. As they advance, Jason uses his mental connection with the Duryom to break Shimra's influence over the world brain and convinces it to stop destroying the planet. Jason also convinces a pair of monsters to help them smash their way into the Citadel. Inside, the Jedi discover dozens of warriors covering for Shimra as a Supreme Overlord climbs up to his escape craft. Jason and Jaina watch in awe as their uncle surrenders himself to the Force, becoming an unstoppable force of nature and he begins to advance through the Vong warriors in pursuit of the Supreme Overlord. Following their uncle, Jason and Jaina enter Shimra's ship, but they're stopped by a group of slayers. Our heroes are outnumbered six to three, but even with their enhancements, the slayers prove no match for the Jedi. When the fight ends, Shimra stands alone in the coffer, brandishing a special amphisaf and scepter of power, and a purple lightsaber. Anakin's lightsaber. As the Supreme Overlord advances on the Jedi, Jaina notices Onimi climbing up to the bridge of the ship. Jason shouts to his sister to follow the shamed one. He and Luke will deal with Shimra. Luke and Jason confront Shimra, but it's obvious that the enormous Supreme Overlord is different from any Yuzhan Vong they faced before. Immediately, Jason attacks, but Shimra knocks him against a wall, stunning him. Luke tries to protect his nephew, but he can't seem to get inside the Vong's defenses. Suddenly, the scepter of power lashes out, striking Luke in the chest and wrapping itself around the Jedi Master, slowly crushing him. Luke calls on the Force and turns into a beacon of light. He calls to Anakin's lightsaber, pulling it from Shimra's hand. Now with two blades, Luke slices through the Amphistaff and frees himself. Still glowing in the Force, the Jedi Master knocks Shimra to his knees and uses the two blades to decapitate the Supreme Overlord. 
Luke then sways from the venom injected by the amphistaff and collapses to the deck. Jaina ascends the stairs to the vessel's control room, searching for Onimi. Out of nowhere, the shamed one launches himself at Jaina. She tries to raise her lightsaber in defense, but Onimi lands on her shoulders, driving Jaina to the floor. Onimi throws Jaina's lightsaber away and grabs her by the ankle. He flings Jaina across the deck, slamming her into the wall. Quickly, Jaina springs to her feet, but again, Onimi leaps on top of her, biting down hard on her arm with his deformed fang. When Onimi steps back, Jaina prepares to attack, but she has no feeling in her arm. And quickly, Jaina feels the numbness spread throughout her body. Confused, Jaina begins to lose consciousness. But as the blackness takes her, she has a terrifying thought. She can feel Onimi in the Force. On Zonama Seacott, my boyfriend Kip and Karan lead a ragtag squad of living ships against dozens of coral skippers. The fighters may only fire their plasma weapons when the Vong skips fire first, but they have other means to defend themselves. They can project gravity wells to push the coral skippers away from, from the Zonama Seacott, and they use it to clear dozens of the skips from orbit. Just when it looks like the Jedi have gained the upper hand, they spot a group of Vong ships protecting a small transport. Instantly, my boyfriend Kip realizes what's happening. It's the ship infected with Alpha Red, and it's heading straight for the living planet. Jason regains consciousness and watches his uncle kill Shimra and then collapse. Quickly, he runs to Luke, but the Jedi Master tells Jason to help his sister. Luke gives him Anakin's lightsaber, and Jason climbs the stairs to the control room. There, he finds Jaina awake and strung up between the statues of two of the Yuzhan Vong gods. Onimi tells the twins that he is the real supreme overlord. He used to be a shaper who fused his brain with Yamask tissue to try and access the Eighth Cortex and save the Vong during their centuries-long journey between galaxies. The fusion left Onimi shamed, but he discovered that he could touch the Force. Onimi manipulated Shimra into invading and conquering the galaxy. But with the reappearance of Zadama Seacott, Onimi lost control of Shimra, causing the Supreme Overlord to go insane. Onimi's only hope, to use Alpha Red and destroy the living planet. Jason remembers his vision from Doro, of him standing over a galaxy teetering on the edge of oblivion. He hears a voice telling him to stand firm, it's the voice of his grandfather, Anakin Skywalker. Finally, Jason understands the vision. He can't end this war by defeating Onimi in battle, but by becoming the lightsaber himself. Jason opens himself fully to the Force, becoming so immersed he begins to glow. Terrified that Jason will fall to a similar fate as their little brother, Jaina reaches out to her twin. But Jason smiles. He uses the Force to hold Onimi against a wall and slowly undoes the Shamed One's deformities. Without the Yamask enhancement, Onimi can no longer touch the Force, and the Shamed One loses control of the toxins coursing through his body, killing him. Han, Leia, Mara, Naminor, and Harar arrive at the palace. They find Luke wounded but alive. They help the Jedi Master up to the control room where the entire group reunites with Jason and Jaina just as the Supreme Overlord's control craft launches into orbit. But with Onimi and Shimra dead, the ship begins to break apart. 
Namanor says the Supreme Overlord has an escape pod just off the control deck. The former executor ushers the group down a hall when Jason realizes it's a trap. Namanor shoots a toxin out of his false eye, but Jason turns it to water using a force technique he learned from Verger. Finally, Namanor shows the group to the real entrance to the escape pod, but he refuses to enter. When Jason asks why, the former, former executor says he doesn't fit in this galaxy and he doesn't want anything to do with whatever comes next. The escape pod launches just as the ship explodes, ending the life of Namanor. At Zanama Seacott, the Jedi try to stop the Vong ship infected with Alpha Red, but their fighters won't respond to their commands. The living ships return to the surface of the planet, much to the confusion of Kip and Corrin. But suddenly, from the Boras, new ships arise. The Jedi watch as the living ships converge on the sickly Vong transport. They ensnare it with their gravity well projectors, using them like a tractor beam, and send it out into space to die. On his flagship, Nas Choka witnesses the loss of the transport and the destruction of Shimra's palace vessel. Seeing that the Yuzhan Vong have lost and fearing the gods have forsaken them, the War Master orders the rest of his troops to surrender or commit suicide. The Yuzhan Vong War is over. In the months that follow, Nashchoka enters into an agreement with the Galactic Alliance to disarm the Yuzhan Vong. He assumes that most of his species will be executed or sold into slavery. But Luke tells the Warmaster that Zonama Sakat has agreed to let the Vong settle on the planet. Sakat believes that Zonama is the seed of the original Yuzhan Tar. Sakat says the planet wants to invite its ancestral people home. And it hopes that one day, having turned away from war and conquest and sacrifice, the Yuzhan Vong can once again find themselves back to the Force. With the end of the war, our heroes decide to go their separate ways. Danny Kui and Tekli want to stay and study Zonama Sakat. Tahiri feels a kinship with the Yuzhan Vong and decides to stay and help the species learn to live in harmony with the galaxy. They say goodbye and return to the surface of Zanama Sakat, just as the planet jumps to hyperspace and returns to the unknown regions. The story ends with the Skywalkers and the Solos on Kashyyyk at a celebration to honor Chewbacca and his sacrifice at Cernpadal. Luke proclaims that the Jedi Order will best serve the Force if each Jedi follows their conscience. They can help the Alliance rebuild the galaxy, or they can stay out of Alliance affairs if they want to. Jaina tells Jason that she's returning to her Starfighter Squadron. She's a fighter pilot, and she wants time to figure out what being the Sword of the Jedi means. Jason tells his sister that he plans to search the galaxy for other Force users, like the Falanasi and the Theron listeners, to try and learn as much as he can about the Force. Han and Leia decide to go with Luke, Mara, and little Ben to the planet Osis to help Luke set up a new Jedi Academy. They prepare to leave when Lobaka and Chewie's son, Waru, approach them. They say that now that the war is over, Han's period of mourning is over. They'll be assuming Chewbacca's life debt and joining the Solos on the Millennium Falcon. Time for a break. When we return, we'll talk more about The Unifying Force by James Lucino. I'm Aaron Motes. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge. When you need 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, where we celebrate the books from Star Wars Legends. But let me take a moment and recommend a book from Star Wars canon. Aftermath, Empire's End is the conclusion to the best-selling trilogy about the final days of the Empire. Nora Wexley and her team hunt for Imperial Grand Admiral Ray Sloan, who's searching for the mysterious Gallius Rex. And it all culminates at one last battle on the planet Jakku. Will Nora and Ray Sloan be able to stop Rex from implementing the Emperor's final plan? Find out in Aftermath, Empire's End by Chuck Wendig, the final book in the Aftermath trilogy. Welcome back to the Star Wars Legends Lounge, the show that celebrates the books from Star Wars Legends. I'm Aaron Motes. Today, K2, Scott, and I are talking about The Unifying Force by James Luceno, the 19th and final book in the New Jedi Order series. All right, we'll get the specifics here in a second, but first, I wanted to congratulate K2. You guessed it, Oni Me, the real big bad. You said it in the last episode that we had together when I just asked you your thoughts on Oni Me and you did a throwaway line, I don't know, maybe she, maybe he's controlling Shimra. Whatever, but I you said guessed he was it. was a puppet, but I, I feel like you you prompted me. I, I mean, I did uh, say it because it, but I feel all like... All I did was ask the question, what do you think of Oni Me? Because it was the first book we had right. seen. I mean, it was the first, you had the book where Shimra yeah. and Oni Me first get there. Yeah. He seeded you like Zonama Sakat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah. Uh, Shimra is, a, is still kind of a... A mystery to me anyway um was shimra can we start at the end <laughs> like, you can start wherever you want so, this is a discussion right so shimra so onimi like merged or took him over puppeted him whatever the term they would use are right so he's using him but was shimra the supreme overlord and then he got in there and took him over or was did he make him the supreme i never quite i don't know if i just missed it i took it as when the previous Supreme Overlord, which I believe his name was Coriel, did not want to come into this galaxy because they had an omen saying that a living planet was in this galaxy and they should not invade this one. But their world ships were dying in between the galaxies and they didn't want their race to go extinct. So this one shaper decided to try to find the information in the 8th Cortex to try to keep their world ships alive, realized that the 8th Cortex was empty, it was a lie, and that's when he came up with this thing, well, I know the Yamasks kind of coordinate with the other Yuzhan Vong, they're an intelligent species, let me fuse the Yamask with my brain and see if I can come up with something. And when he did, 
the book says that somehow he could touch the force. I And then with Kuril deciding not to come, Shimra was one of the possible heirs to the Supreme Overlord. That's when I thought the book kind of describes that Onimi nudged Shimra into staging a coup, killing Koryal, taking over the Yuzhan Vong, and invading this galaxy, mostly just so that the species could survive. I, th- I think, good job guessing it. I th- it feels like, I didn't put it together, so I don't give myself any like extra credit or anything, but like it never made sense that this bungling, shamed one was trundling around with the leader of the entire Yuzhan Vong. It never made sense. They hate shamed ones. Why would they let yeah. him just hang around? So it always felt weird. I think the beginning of this book, before we learn at the end what Onimi is, the one Yuzhan Vong we spent the most time with was Naminor, whether or not he's a character that everyone liked or not. But Naminor is one of the few Yuzhan Vong that see the world differently than the rest of the species. And for the first half of this book, I think Naminor was the reader's point of view. He was the one that kept looking side-eye at Onimi. Like, something weird's going on here. Do you remember, the one quibble I have with Onimi as a whole, is do you remember the time when Naminor was like, he was out above above the lower tunnel levels, he was going to like a meeting of the heretics, and he sees Onimi just kind of like wandering around near one of the meetings. Do you remember that? I we never so. got anything about that. But I... It, it totally told me there was something going on, but, like, we never got any explanation about it. And there was also a little bit of foreshadowing, I think, two books ago when Naminor, in the disguise as Yusha, was out and about, and he's going over toward the Shaper Damatuk, and he sees Onimi go in to the Shaper Damatuk to talk to them, and then yeah. leaves, like... Why, and, and it actually, why? I think it actually says, yeah. <laughs> like, why is Shimra sending a shamed one to talk yeah. to the shapers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting because having that discussion of him being a puppet, I always read it that way. So I kept reading, th- assuming that all of these questions that people were getting, I was like, well, it's because he's in charge. <laughs> it's because he's in control. Mm-hmm. So it made it... Um, I noticed some of it last. I almost skip over it because I'm like, oh no, he's, he's, I didn't, I never, even thinking that, I still never really understood the Shimra thing. I'm like, okay, what, did he make this guy? Like, who is he? Maybe that's why I was always so confused because I couldn't quite figure out that part of it. Yeah. One thing you don't, I don't really feel like I have a handle on is how much free will does Shimra have? How much, how much of that intimidation and control and like, absolute majesty and and intimidation and all of those things they they really focus on in this book how much of that is really him or is he just a puppet all the time or is it more like twice a day onimi's like no no do this (laughs) right Right. is he just using the force like a jedi mind trick on him or is he controlling him completely it's a really good question because you know if shimra was positioned and poised to take over he has to have had some intelligence and maybe even charisma or, you know, yeah. in a, in a Yuzhan Vong way. Um, 
that is he able to use that and tap into it or is he really just you know like on sesame street so um i don't know it's so it's a it's the mystery that i think we aren't going to solve right aaron the the other part that i really like and, and you know shimra oni me i'm not saying it's one of my favorite parts of the story because it isn't but one of the parts that i really like when jaina thinks that she felt Onimi in the Force. Thinking back a few books ago, I think it's Jakar and Drathul tell Naminor about this weight that you feel when Shimra is talking to you. Mm. And Naminor feels that. He feels this something pressing on him as Shimra is asking him questions. I don't think that's Shimra at all. I think that's Onimi pressing on each of the Yuzhan Vong he's talking to. Oh, like trying to impress upon them? That's interesting. They're not manipulable through the force mentally, but like uh, I think it, Luke says earlier in this book that if he wanted to, he could lift Horar up. Even though he's not part of the force, he could still lift him like an object. Right? And so, yeah, he could... Yeah, Onimi could kind of like like give the sense of pressing down on them. And the fact that it's a Yamask, we know the Yamask can sense the minds of Yuzhan Vong. Yeah. So I think that's what's going on there. Well, and didn't they use those to just to, to feel the, to sense the force too? When worth Yeah, way back at the beginning. Right. That's, that was a Yamas, yes, right? It that was, yeah. could yes. sense, because they could sense the, the force in people. So maybe they were, there's something there as well. That was a long time ago. That was like May. <laughs> <laughs> It's Christmas. <laughs> it was a while ago. Yeah. So your overall thoughts on this book as a conclusion to the series. I have said this is my favorite series in Star Wars, but I don't think they stick the landing particularly well. I don't want to lead the jury here. Scott, what is your opinion of this book as a conclusion? Listen, let, let me start just a one sentence positivity note. It was good. I enjoyed it. But listen, there's a lot in here. Those of us, all three of us on this call, and hopefully some of your listeners too, waiting on the winds of winter from George R. R. Martin, feel this deep in our bones. Wrapping up the arcs of literally dozens of characters in one or two books is a big ask. It is hard to do. It's literally the reason we've been waiting 12 years for the next book in the series that we love. Add in the fact that this is one author wrapping up the work of many authors, it gets harder. So several arcs, including Jaina and Tahiri, Naminor, lots, several, frankly, I feel pretty unsatisfied with how they're used and wrapped up in the final acts here. But I don't really know how you solve that problem in one book. I don't, I don't know that there is a really good answer to that. You're, you're going to have struggles. Sticking the landing is tough. Overall, though, good. The Onimi surprise thrown in for fun is good. You know, the reappearance of Alpha Red, I think we kind of all kind of expected that. Felt like a gun on the wall, a shotgun on the wall that was going to come back. But it's a good conclusion. Like You know, like many TV shows and sitcoms, landing a plane is tough. But it was good. It was good. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. Yeah. K2? I'm almost, I'm going to agree with Scott on a couple of things, which I know is shocking. What? It, there was a lot. Right. It was I knew I had the last book and um, 
in my brain, I was expecting it to be mostly epilogue, hmm. right? I was expecting Matt's book, which I loved, by the way, by the way, last, last, the last, the eight book. The final prophecy isn't the final Thank book. You. I mean, it, 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 yeah. it would seem it would well, be with the name. So that's kind of, so I, maybe that's why. Maybe my, but I was like, oh, it'll be epilogue and we're going to get all that closure. But what mm-hmm. I, where I disagree a little with Scott is that this isn't the last Star Wars book. Yeah. So they didn't have to end everybody's arc. They simply had to end it in this section of their lives yep. right sure. so it was allowed in my mind to just be like this is where everyone's gonna go and do you think that was satisfying that part i for me i was assuming i'm assuming that there's more to come on a lot of these characters right and I'm, I'm assuming that there's more mention of tahiri in another book or something yes. but um so it, that's why I don't think the same way about that because it's not the winds ending or dream of spring or something, right? It's but like, were going. you fulfilled by the way they used Jaina in this story? Okay, good question. No, and I do think mm. that we know that, as I've said multiple times, not that you guys are memorizing my favorite two characters. Does anybody want to know? Jaina and Kip. Well, Kip's my boyfriend. <laughs> Um, Jaina and Mara um, are my two favorites. And I honestly think these uh, that the multiple authors did Jaina the most disservice. Mm. I don't think she made sense author to author. She varies quite way. a bit, it feels like. Yeah, and I, don't, I just don't, I don't know that she felt like a damsel in distress in this book that made no sense because it isn't, the role she's played and in, in certainly in some other key times. So to your point, no, was I satisfied with Gina? I thought, I thought the fact that she wasn't the princess in the tower and she's like, all right, Dag, I'll see you later. Um, was the most on brand thing, but yeah, I didn't think it made a ton of sense. Her, the particularly the battle sequence with, um, Jason and Luke. Um, it was very odd. Specifically, her not getting a seed ship that relates to her. And I think it's Jason saying that means Zanama Sakat has a bigger purpose for you. And then she's basically window dressing. She doesn't really, I mean, I'm sure they would have died without her. Right. But like, she doesn't have some sort of instrumental impact to that final act that really makes a difference. She goes up and chases Onimi and gets, messed up right like she doesn't win or affect him mentally or do really anything other than lose and then give moral support to jason right but it wasn't but if it had been meaningful moral support like he was struggling and she imbued him with the force and helped that would have been different but it didn't feel like there was a promise of like you've got a purpose here and you just don't see it yet it didn't feel fulfilled to me no and you know they they constantly have used her or it's almost as if they just used her for that. Like they sent her in to motivate him to become one with the force and glow like that and become the lightsaber, et cetera. Yeah. Um, was, was her being in peril. Um, and, and then she gets the role of, you know, the Scooby-Doo, Hang. like Hang. I'm going to tell you my whole villainous <laughs> thing. And yeah. Oni, I had to read it. I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> Onimi spills the beans. Uh, are, are you monologuing? I, I are, you monologuing? She... I mean... are you monologuing? Are you monologuing? 
<laughs> no, I mean, he monologued for like, I don't know, 18 pages or something. It was a bit. But, um, at any rate, yeah. I, that, so, yes, your point, Jaina, was not. Uh, but I, I, I hate to, I, I, I don't know if this is fair, but I kind of blame the author. I don't feel like that's necessarily how she was designed. Or the other authors just did a much better job um, in general because some of her stuff, even the book you guys did that you didn't like, The Dark Journey Dark book, Journey. her stuff was cool. Yes. Her story was I, cool. Yeah, as, as much as I didn't love that book, I felt like that author had the best sense of who Jano was. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, that's one of my least favorite books in this series. I think the characterization of Jaina was good. coming yeah. out of Star by Star was excellent. I think some of the conversations she had specifically with Kip were pretty interesting. I just think, and you know, Scott and I talked about it. it it's Go listen to that episode. The, the events of the book are hard to follow, in my opinion. I, I had a hard time following sequence to sequence what was actually happening. Which is different. It was like it was over-edited. But anyway, yeah, I don't think Jaina. So back to the other, I mean, like, I feel like a lot of people leaving with with the planet was really interesting. I liked I liked the closure of the, the smuggler alliance. Mm. I liked the fact they were sitting around drinking and kind of toasting. And Wedge was there. And, I, you know, I thought the humor at the end of, you know, just getting a laugh out of Leia... Um, so in the, that sense, I did feel some good closure for the series, again, knowing that it's not the last, it was the last Star Wars book ever. I, I, I would probably agree with you, Scott. I think Lucino just tries to do too much with this book. The book is just over 500 pages long. I think you, instead of stopping at 19, you could have made a 20th made them both 300 pages each. If you stop this book when Zanama Seacott arrives in the Coruscant system, you got 300 pages up to that. And then you could have, in the second book, elaborated more on the endings of some of these stories. You guys are talking about Jaina, but the character I thought that was done the most disservice in this book was Tahiri Vela. Because, especially in the three books leading up to this, we have a lot about Tahiri coming to terms with being, quote-unquote, part human and part Yuzhan Vong. How is that going to factor in to the endgame here? Is Tahiri going to play a big role in this endgame? Yeah. And the only part she plays is picking out Naminor in a crowd and pointing to Mara. Hey, that's Naminor. That was it. More than what Jaina did. But yeah, I, I, <laughs> but I pointed out that, sorry, I love Jaina. It's not a criticism of Jaina. But I pointed out to Hiri and Naminor too, of, of people that I was kind of not super pleased with how kind of it went. I agree. There's a whole arc here that's hinted at with what the Yuzhan Vong are going to do in the future now that they've surrendered and they're on Zanama Sakan. Tahiri could play, play a huge role in trying to bring them in to the rest of the culture of this galaxy, right? And and try to bridge that gap. And they don't include it at all. It could be, it's, yeah, it's an could. easy lift. It's easy. 
that's what I meant by there. There could have been a lot more epilogue and yeah. some of that. Yeah, you if know, there was a second book, you could have yes, ended yeah, the fighting yeah, there, yeah. and and the epilogue yeah. could have been t- like a hundred pages long. Totally, and 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 give you know get a, like a little chapter here and there of these of these things. I think that's a great example. But I will say that to hear a moment did give me possibly my favorite part in the book, which was Mara kicking the crap out of Namanor. Chasing him she for just punched him. three days. I was like, yeah, but she just punches. Like, I, I don't know. I, I really, I really enjoyed her she toyed revenge. With what, what, one, last, one last negative thing I want to say about this book, because I do want to talk about the positives in it. There are positives in this book. Like Scott, like you said, it's a good book. I wouldn't say it's a very good book, but it's a good book. I've said before, in all of Legends, I've got three or four favorite Legends-only characters. Two of those characters in this book, I don't like how the story ends. You guys already mm-hmm. talked about Jaina. She's one of my favorites. The other is Naminor. I know not a lot of people like him, but I love him. I think the book follows him pretty well until the very, 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 very end. He would not just step back and get himself no. blown up. No, what is he? he's, he's a, sur- a survivor. He's a survivor. That That's man what he is. Is a survivor, and I think it was off brand. And Scott, I was going to ask you: Do you actually think he's dead? No. Or is he off where with it? No, I, I feel like it was such a disservice to who Nominor is that I don't believe that ship blew up or was that he didn't have another way off or something I else. I think he had a way off. I genuinely don't. I think it's completely off brand. He's a yeah, massive I, shyster. He's a good shyster. I think personally, I think we're let we're we're supposed to believe he got away. Even though everyone talks about him being Aaron dead. Aaron can probably I, tell us because he's read all the books. But it doesn't mean, no, like, he could, because he's got the masker. He can be off there faking his way through through everything. The fact that there was no body tells me that Lucino wanted us to have this thought, which is mm. he got away. He had a plan and he I got mean, away. Even like when they're going effect. toward the escape pod, that was still Naminor when he when he tries to double cross him again, kill him yeah. so he can take his own. That's, that's still fine. It's just at the end. So, well, there's no place for me in this galaxy, and I don't want to be around when the next thing happens. No. No. He would yeah, go with them. Lady. He would get arrested. He would be tried. Or he, he would say... some other way out. Or he yep. would say, yeah, I'll go to Zama Seacott. I'll, I'll figure out what I can do there to to make my way back up in the world. Seemed Yeah, because totally the Yuzhan Vong are all about like the glorious death, and he was always at odds with that. Exactly. He was not... He's like a not really culturally a Yuzhan Vong. He's his own little culture. And I completely get, Aaron, what you think, what you find so interesting about about Naminor. But yeah, I, I actually, I don't believe at all. I There's no doubt in my mind that the design of that was that he he had another way out. Yeah, I believe he's but, alive. I also still believe Anakin's alive, though. So take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> uh, but that's where you're wrong. But we did, we did, though, cover all three characters in this little dialogue we've had. Uh, that I said I was unsatisfied with. Jaina, Tahiri, and Naminor. Right. So let's look at the positives. Scott, you said your favorite character in the series was Jason. They mm. allude to the vision he had back in Balance Point, which I believe you had. That was your first book. I did. Yep. The vision comes back. Are you satisfied with the way that happened? Are you satisfied with Jason's story overall? <laughs> you... You labeled as a positive, so I feel I feel uh, impressed upon that I should say it was good. I didn't care for it. I uh, it felt like um, it, it felt like they were just kind of rewriting it the way they wanted it to be, 
and changing it enough that it made sense. I didn't care for it. Oh, I, th- I thought it tracked. I thought it tracked. Okay. All right. I thought, you know, what's so funny is I was going to put money on the fact that you did not like that part. <laughs> I didn't care for it. <laughs> yeah. And it, but like the whole glowy becoming the lightsaber, becoming the weapon, all of this stuff was. I don't hate what happened. I don't hate how that whole thing went down where he became so one with the force that he was glowing and could transmute, you know, materials into other materials. And I guess defeated Onimi another way because he said he didn't. Sure. He wanted to I, figure out a way to defeat the Vong without fighting. I, I don't hate any of that. I, I, thought, I thought it was good. I, did, I just didn't really like the way they explained the metaphor as part of it. Okay. That makes sense. That's all. Yeah. The, the floating lightsaber, I need to be the lightsaber instead of the one that's floating through the universe. I, what does that even mean? So you need to catch I just, yourself? I seriously, when I, it I read it, my, my first thought was, Scott's going to hate this. <laughs> that was the first thing. You know me so well. Let, let me, let me uh, rephrase. From the way Jason began at the beginning of the saga through the events that happened in the middle to where he ends up now and then deciding afterwards, look, I still don't think this is the way the Jedi should be. I'm going to go off and try to figure out what I want to be. Yeah. How did you like Jason's story overall? Loved it. Uh, Yeah. So like the way they describe that metaphor, I didn't really love, but who cares? The journey itself and the where he landed and how he progressed was great. In the end, if you really look at it, he was right all along. He didn't have the details. He didn't have the plan. He didn't have the roadmap. But he's like, this isn't right. None of this is the way. This is None of this is where I fit, right? And if you really look at it, he still doesn't really know where he fits. But he knows more certainly that he doesn't fit and that he's got to go learn more and go find more people that know more about the Force. I love the journey. Jason is, um, he supersedes the Jedi to me. He's on a spiritual level above them uh, and trying to expand on what they know and what they feel about the Force. And that it, it's almost like he doesn't really belong in the Jedi. He's off doing his own thing. And Luke, we'll get to it, I think, is you know, one of the topics here, but I think Luke encourages that. Luke wants everyone to kind of take their own path, and Jason has always been on his own path, or at least... Since that first book I covered, he's been very much pursuing what he seems to think is the right way for him to go. And that's good, and he's still doing it, and he's got a different perspective than everyone else. And I I love it. I think that's one of the reasons why fans of Legends, those that have a lot of experience with all the books, consider Jason Solo as one of, if not their favorite, Legends-only character. Because he is, he thinks about the Jedi in a different way than everything we had experienced up to this point when these books were published. Totally. He's, he's looking at it on a different level to try to grow the order towards something better instead of just being a member of the order. Right. So you mentioned Luke and what the new Jedi order is going to be moving forward. While Luke didn't want the Jedi to like be members of the military if they didn't want to, they, he didn't want the Jedi leading the fight against the Yuuzhan Vong. He did think, in my opinion, 
that at least the Jedi should be working with the first the New Republic, now the Galactic Alliance, in repelling the Yuuzhan Vong from the galaxy. At the end of this book, he has decided that a Jedi's relationship with the Force is now going to be more on a personal level, I would say. The Jedi get to decide for themselves how they're best going to serve the Force. He is going to keep the Council going forward. I didn't really understand how that was going to work if the Jedi are just allowed to kind of do what they want to do. I take it as though there's going to be a ton of Qui-Gon Jinns and yet one Jedi Council, and then Qui-Gon's just not going to care what the Council says anyway. Is that what you envision is the best thing for the Jedi, K2? I mean, that's a good question. I don't know. I was thinking the Council was almost more about representing Jedi to like maybe some of the politicians and stuff versus it being the council we see in the movies. Yes, you're correct. It's, it's, I guess it's the high council that they call it. There's six members of the galactic Alliance government and six members of the Jedi council that are on it. Right. It's to kind of keep Calamos and and the rest of those guys in line. But, um, it, it, it feels very, um, uh, it's the word like ethereal, right? Like this kind of like liberation to, to go, to go forge your own path. And, um, what's interesting about it is that the Jedi or somebody describes the dark side and the light side being selfish versus selfless. And what does that do? If you all of a sudden get to become selfish and like really do your own thing and just wander the earth in some Jedi robes and go find everybody, um, you know, like Jason's going to do, does that, again, something I said, I think in, when I was answering the question is like, the if you are a force user, like a, like a strong force user, are you more susceptible to being pulled, um, gravitational pull into one of those directions? And then what does that do um, for, you know, a resurgence of Sith or, you know, Kip, part of Kip's um, salvation, if you will, is that he's around other people who can talk him out of some of his crazy dark ideas, right? So I don't know. It could really be um, bad for some of them, right, Um, who don't have a great kind of sense of maybe self-regulation or emotional regulation like, like I would say Kip. Um, and I think what's interesting about Jason, just to, to piggyback on what your last conversation is, I thought his arc was so interesting because he was so against using the force. So then he became a weapon used by the force. Like, I'm not quite sure if I'm saying that right, but there's an interesting journey, like a proper arc of where I feel like he's, he's really powerful he reminds me of Anakin. I'm talking about his grandfather. He's reminding me of, of his power, reminds me of him. And him alone, that's scary, you know, to me. Um, I hope he finds nice people. Well, I think that's one of the eternal questions of Star Wars and when it comes to the Jedi. And 
I don't really think there is an answer. It's if the Jedi are ultimately answerable to the Force and what the Force wants, how do they fit into a society? Because the rest of civilization has rules. If, if you're the defenders of peace and justice and there's a war going on on your planet, but the Force tells you, one of the few people who can end this war peacefully, the Force tells you not to get involved. I mean, what is that? You are still part of the society. What is the correct ratio of li- you know, living with other people and then just following the Force? I don't know what to say. Uh, I it so. I don't think it's designed to have an answer. Yeah, it. I mean, at the very near the very beginning of the series, we have a discussion between Luke and Jason about the nature of the Jedi and where they should be going. And Jason talks about it being a much more individual, spiritual relationship with the Force. And Luke talks about it being more of an organization. And what we get here from Luke is very much a movement toward Jason's opinion of the Dr. Pepper slogan, be you, do what you do. Uh, You know, like, you need to be mindful of the Force but you have all of your own paths and we have to trust you with that. And I think kind of echoing a little bit of what K2 said already, that's good, but dangerous. If you give a thousand people a nuke and you trust them all with that nuke, which is the, the force, right? In this case, right? It's a tremendous amount of power. You can probably trust 999 of them. But if one of them screws up, Aaron, you're you've you've created a problem, right? And so I don't. If the question is, you know, like, what do I think of where the Jedi Order is going? I don't love it. It feels it feels like there needs to be it, from that first conversation with Luke and Jason. I said it's got to be somewhere in the middle. Clearly, they're going to land somewhere in the middle. And you don't it think really... what Luke is doing is sort of in the middle there? Doesn't feel that way to me. Feels you think like it's too far to Jason's side. Yes, feels like there's very little oversight, a lot of individualism, which I think is good, but like very little control, and it feels like there needs to be some. This is yeah, a this, group are, of people with tremendous. These power. are powerful people, and the Jedi Council has always been that group that checks and balances. Right. I mean, it doesn't mean they've done it well. It doesn't mean they didn't make a, yeah. a, a, tons of mistakes. Sure. But the idea was to to check their power. And, and this unmitigated, these just superheroes running around that can talk people into doing anything just by looking at them like that's scary. Who, who watches the Watchmen situation? Oh, uh, yeah. Yes. If you have 100, I know I'm biased toward Jason, but if you have 100 Jasons, probably it's going to be fine. They're all going to go meditate and learn stuff and be peaceful and not hurt anybody. But you got some Elimarars in there. You got some Kips. You got some wild cards. Sorry. Kip. Sorry. How he did you. destroy like a whole civilization. <laughs> yeah. We, we know Kip has done this before when he was like 16 or 17 years old. He blew up a planet. I should have picked a different example. I'm sorry. I'm just saying like you have some people that are 
perhaps not as considered and careful as Jason is. Jaina, Jaina went dark. Jaina's one of them. Yeah. Good example. She was able to be pulled back quickly, but Jaina was going down a dark path. I, I feel like there needs to be some level of touch point and accountability, not just go do what you do. Mm. I agree. And so I don't, I didn't love it. It felt, I don't know about lazy from a writing perspective, but it, it didn't, it wasn't, maybe the future novels explore this and they're like, oh, well, that wasn't great. I don't know. K2, you said this isn't the last Star Wars book. Now, I, while I may not think this is a great finale for this series, it does set up stuff going forward. And one of the things okay. it does set up is the Jedi Council, Luke's role with the Jedi really sets up Jason's role going forward. So in in this case, I will say this is something that they came up with that future authors for the books that continue on the timeline really take a look at. So we're going to look like idiots on this cast, and that's fine. No, you're not. No, no, if you no. haven't read the I books, you don't know anything. To, I think it's supposed to go <laughs> exactly. wrong. Exactly. I think yeah. it's supposed to be the wrong way to do it or said differently they get to explore the flaws in it in future books, right? Like they've made a choice so they ha- can write more books. But um, speaking of Kip, because it's your favorite. Oh, no. Here we go. I... <laughs> His no, no. biceps are huge. Ah, he's gorgeous. Um, no, I thought it was really um, – he's such a subtle like under – like background character, right? And he just plays a supporting role and I know – um, I've always just, you know, I just mess with Kip because you hate him. But um, I loved, though, that they threw in. I, see, and I thought this is where I thought there was a lot of really interesting things in this book that uh, that I liked. Because, you know, I liked, I tend to see the positive in, 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 the, in the things that I read. But I thought they called back all the books in this book. Mm-hmm. They kept oh, going they back to everyone's, you know, story. And they talked about Vector Prime. Well, they ended up at Kashyyyk anyway. But, like... They call back a book that I gave Scott two years ago. They called back Tatooine Ghost. This is this, yeah, the Twilight. Uh, they did, yeah, they Twilight. did that a lot. Yeah, Killick Twilight, Kip. the, the Twilight. moss yeah. painting. A lot. Oh right, okay. The painting was so cool. That was so cool. But he, um, you know, at one point, Kip says, "I don't want to see another planet destroyed." To me, that was that call. That was that was that kind of arc for him where. He has grown and matured and he understands it and he's willing to play this background role and a supportive role and try to do the right thing and stay on the council and such. And to me, it shows it's almost a struggle he has as a character to to start to fight his way back and maybe find forgiveness internally. Like we don't get that's why I wanted a Kip book. I actually think there'd be a lot of really interesting things going on in that man's head that we could we could dig into, not just his biceps. Okay. Triceps are there as well. So I, I've got another question about the Force specifically before we move on. That what did you think about? I guess Vergier's declaration about the Yuuzhan Vong coming true—that it's the Jedi's misperception of the Yuuzhan Vong in the Force. Because I don't think that really matches up with Zanama Seacott saying that the planet somehow stripped them of the force. And that's one of the things I've always said doesn't work for me with Zanama Seacott specifically. I don't really understand a living planet, but I also don't understand in the rules of this galaxy how a living thing can be stripped in the force when we know that 
in the rules of this galaxy, the force resides in all living things. For me, I feel like when we heard that the Yuzhan Vong were stripped of the force, it sounds like the Jedi are perceiving them the way that planet wanted them to be perceived. They were stripped of the force. They were perceiving them accurately. They were a culture stripped of the force. They were outside the force. It didn't mean they had to remain that way, but in the moment that seemed like what they were. It seems like Verger was wrong, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, that's always been my question. How do you lose the Force? Because it sounds like you could perceive them in the Force originally, but after they turned to their warrior ways, they had the Force taken from them, or I guess their presence in the Force taken from them. Yeah. And I, I don't know. That, to me, that's always just been too confusing to really understand. I don't think it's very well explained. Agreed. It's just, it's stripped of, stripped from, right? Is it that it's a blank space, like a black hole, and there's actually something there, and they're getting blocked from no, it? No, I, I took it as though you just... There's no connection Yeah, anymore. that's just what I took it as. I didn't take it as you felt a void, because you could perceive a void. You know, just that you could see a Yuzhan Vong standing in front of you, but if you had the force, they able to... Per- the ability to perceive the force, you couldn't, even though you could see them with your eyes, you couldn't perceive that they were standing there. But Vergier should have known the difference. Like, she was there for, what, 50 years or something longer? Well, yeah, but they got stripped thousands of years. Yeah, they were still floating in the the void between galaxies by that time. It's just confusing. I will say it's confusing. It is. I don't think it's very, it's made very clear. For a long book, they didn't really explain it. They did do is they kept naming characters in a room over and over, like <laughs> paragraphs of every character that's in the room. I'm like, is this what unifying force means when they're going to go through and name every single Jedi and describe them? They're unifying the they room. Let's turn this around the other way. Going forward, Zanama Seacott has welcomed the Yuzhan Vong, the ones who decided to surrender, to live on the planet, you know, with it. Um and try to become a more peaceful people, a more peaceful society. How do you expect that to work? If you had to think about it, what would have to take place for the Yuzhan Vong to do this? And that's kind of a deep question, I know. Um, part of me is like, won't be that hard. Zanama Sakat will stop them from doing anything bad. Sounds a bit like a slave colony, <laughs> right? Like it, a little bit like Zanama Sikot's going to be like, nope, slap on the wrist. That's a bad behavior. Nope. Slap on the wrist. That's bad culture. Nope. You don't eat that meal. Like it can just dis- decide what type of culture it's building by determining the environment and the, you know, the positive and negative stimuli it gives for their behavior. Right. It depends on like their control, though, right? Like who becomes in charge? You're going to have some sort of government or some sort of, you know, yes, are the are the sh- are the sh- it's a like the shamed planet. ones going to step up? I didn't take it as it only allowed the Pharaohs to do whatever it thought was correct. It seemed like the planet's the consciousness you know. allowed the Pharaohs, you know, self determination. 
free will to some degree. Yes, but they also grew up in that circumstance. No, in a it says they're. Planet. It says they're colonists. They've only been there for a little over a hundred years. Okay, but still, they were in a society of peace. Sure. Well, like they didn't come from a warrior culture. Zonamasakat is taking in a culture that it needs to fix. And I don't know exactly what ends it will take to do that. Keeping them planet side until they're better. Not letting them trade with people until they're better. Who knows what it will do. It doesn't feel like a, you know, a menacing presence. I'm not saying Zonamasakat is a an evil planet, but it is a planet controlling its population to some degree. So it's a little weird to me. It does feel a little bit, not not imprisonment, it is it is the Vong coming home, right? It feels like they're going to a place they belong. It invited them there. It didn't say they had to come there. But, well, the Galactic Alliance is pretty much making sure they go there. But, but, but they, they belong there from like a biological, genealogical, you know... Uh, DNA perspective, they belong there. But that's removed culturally from, from where they are now. They belong there biologically, but culturally they've moved way beyond that to something else. Zanama Sakat has to teach them to be what it wants them to be. And that's a that's a steady learning curve. Yeah, it's tough. That said, I don't hate it. That sure. like somebody had to correct their behavior, and this is as good a solution as any. It's a it's a bit of a, you know, Deus Ex Machina moment, but I don't hate it. Well, we could. It, th- this is Star Wars. You couldn't have the good guys trying the entire species for war crimes and sentencing, yeah. sentencing them all to death. Right. Nor do I want that. Well, it's almost time to go. But first, we have a few Star Wars character groupings to talk about today. On the last episode, Matt suggested asking the listeners which Star Wars authors they'd put on Mount Rushmore. And we have our first few submissions. The first comes from Marcus. His Mount Rushmore features Timothy Zahn, Michael Stackpole, Matthew Stover, and James Lucino. Marcus says he feels like Zahn and Stackpole are both a given. Lucino has contributed some great world-building novels in both Legends and Canon. Stover has written some incredibly insightful books. And Marcus even got to meet Matthew Stover this year at LegendsCon out in California. Marcus said he asked Stover about his, his books, and Stover said, quote, I want some calories in what people read, nothing empty, unquote. Well, great choices, Marcus. Two of those would probably make my route much more. I think Kelly Thompson ought to be on there, but that's just my own take. Well, I mean, you're not biased, though. No, not at all. She wrote just one comic. Probably doesn't deserve to be on the Rushmore. Today's second Mount Rushmore comes from Jacob, who says, I'm coming at this mostly from a canon perspective, because that's what I'm more familiar with. But I've considered Legends works where relevant. One, Timothy Zahn, probably the easiest choice to make. He's the grandfather of the Star Wars EU and one of the most prolific authors in both Legends and Canon timelines. Number two, Claudia Gray, love it, she's my fave. The most consistent author in Canon, almost all her books are in the top tier, including some of the best Star Wars books of all time. She does have some Legends novels. 
<laughs> number three, James Luceno. Another pick based on quality over quantity. While not as prolific in canon, he has some great books in both timelines, including some of the top-tier Legends books, such as Darth Plagueis. Number four, Delilah S. Dawson. This was the hardest to choose because there are lots of authors who I would put at a similar level. I picked Dawson because I've enjoyed all the books she has written so far and think she has the potential to be one of the best moving forward. Honorable mentions go to Drew Carpishin, John Jackson Miller, and Alexander Freed. Thank you very much for the email, Jacob. That's another great list. Our final submission is from Wes, who did a Legends-only Mount Rushmore. His authors are Timothy Zahn, James Lucino, Michael Stackpole, and Drew Carpishian. Wes says, he wrote far less than the others, but the Bane trilogy must be my fave. It's so masterfully written. He has to be on my list. Well, that's a great list, Wes. That's three great Mount Rushmores of Star Wars authors. Marcus, Jacob, Wes, thank you very much for sending them in. Now, listener, if you have a Mount Rushmore you'd like to share with us, or any favorite Star Wars character squadrons, or if you have a question for the show, you can email me at swlegendslounge at gmail.com or send a tweet at legendslounge1. Well, guys, it's time to wrap up K2. If folks would like to get in touch with you and check out the delicious cakes that you like to make, how can they do that? Um, um, find me on Twitter is the best way. K2Cav. So K, the letter K, number two, K-A-V. All letters at the end there. Those aren't numbers. Scott, if folks want to contact you and if they would like to see what's happening over at Davos Fingers at the podcast with you and Matt, how can they do that? Uh, Davos Fingers on Twitter is the best way to find us. Uh, we're on Blue Ski as well. If you search for Davos Fingers, you'll find us there. Uh, we're talking about Song of Ice and Fire regularly. Right now, we're covering the King Killer Chronicle by Patrick Rothfuss, uh, and it's awesome. You got That's a big uh, podcast anniversary coming up here soon, don't you? Uh, we just recorded our 150th episode, if that's what you're referring to. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was last night, actually. I'm a little, a little bleary eyed uh, from last night, but yeah, yeah. And I have listened to all 150 three times. Wow, you have no way. That's yeah, amazing. Okay. I mean, once would be impressive. I haven't even done that. One would be enough to put you in my esteem. I'm sure I've listened to 100 of them. 50 of them. 25 of them. I'm just kidding. Well, congratulations, Scott, to both you and Matt. Now, listener, this won't be the last time you hear from these two because we plan to do one last roundtable episode with everyone for the new Jedi Order series. Scott, K2, Jay, Kat, Matt, and myself, sometime shortly after the new year to wrap up all of our experiences reading uh, this series. It should be a lot of fun, and I'm really looking forward to it. You guys looking forward to that? Oh, yeah. I have so many ideas. I'm going to email you, Aaron. Well, we're in a contract dispute right now about my pay scale for that roundtable. Aaron, you know that. But if it happens, I'm yeah, I'm really excited for it if we figure that out. Yeah, it's a shame Scott won't be there. Well, listener, that wraps up Season 3. I'll be taking an extra week off for the holidays, as K2 knows, because I'm going on vacation for the first time in years. I'm actually going on a vacation after Christmas, between Christmas and New Year. Yes, yes. So, listener, you can look forward to Season 4 starting on Friday, January 12th. 
Make sure to check out the Star Wars Legends Lounge Twitter feed on New Year's Day while I'll be posting the reading schedule for 2024. I'm going to begin the year by jumping back into the prequel era for the next season's first book. It'll be Darth Maul Shadow Hunter by Michael Reeves. I also have one New Year's resolution for the podcast. I'm kind of a technological neophyte, if I could say that. I just don't know a whole lot about it. But I'm going to try to start a podcast Instagram account. So not only will I be posting then on Twitter, I will also post the same information on the Instagram account. And maybe then I could have, uh, you know, a few more pictures. I hear people use Instagram for pictures a lot of times. I believe in you, Aaron. I believe in you. You can do it. Thank you very much for listening to this season of the Star Wars Legends Lounge. I'm Aaron Motes. May the Force be with you. And remember, there's always a bit of truth in Legends.